Welcome to Wellness Connections with the Solutions Group, a passionate team of health and wellness experts that believe every workplace and every community can be a wellness avenue for positive change in the physical and emotional health of individuals. Our experience in workplace wellness inspired us to bring this passion and knowledge to the podcast stage. Sharing real-world stories and science-based practices, your wellness is an ongoing act of creation and we hope to inspire you on that adventure. Welcome to Wellness Connections with the Solutions Group. My name is Shane Schumann and I'll be your host for today. We are so honored to have mindfulness expert Michelle Duvall joining us today on the podcast. Michelle's the director of the Mindful Center, as well as the leading provider of mindfulness training in the Southwest United States, with her ongoing programs appearing in top organizations such as Presbyterian Hospitals, the University of New Mexico, Sandia National Laboratories, and more. And Michelle has also been working directly with the Solutions Group and our clients for many years. All of her programs and guided meditations are evidence-based with her skill in teaching coming not only from training with some of the top meditation masters in the world, but also from years of learning, practicing, and teaching with her father, Jim Duvall, who is the founder of the Mindful Center. Welcome, Michelle, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, we are too. So to kind of kick it off, what we do, um, every guest that joins our podcast, we ask the same question to kind of just get a feel of who, who you are and where you're coming from. And so that question is, who or what has been your greatest inspiration in the area of wellness? Well, that was um, a relatively easy um, question for me to answer. Um, honestly, so so I view, obviously I'm biased, but I view mindfulness and meditation as a such a key point of wellness, both physical wellness as well as mental wellness. In my world, the two completely overlap. So how I would answer that, it would be my parents. Um, my mother, about 30 plus years ago, was struggling. My parents got a divorce. She was struggling with just some some issues, the stress of life, raising two young kids um, by herself. And her mind really started to go haywire. And she reached out to some therapists. Nothing really stuck until a therapist came along and taught her how to meditate. And that changed thing for my mother. And then about, I don't know, five or seven years later, the same thing started happening with my father. He started to develop some stomach issues. He was the president of a real estate company here in Albuquerque. And though he seemed like he had it all together on the outside, um, he was having some physical issues. Stress was appearing in the body in the form of uh, really a lot of, of stomach cramping pains. He would go to the urgent care of the ER sometimes. The stomach pains would get so bad. And eventually the doctor took a look at his big fat folder of negative test results and said, have you ever tried meditation? So my dad did the same thing that my mom did, started to figure out what type of practice um, worked best for him and why I find both of their kind of pathways into meditation so deeply inspiring. I could almost cry to think about it mm -hmm. is that I have watched meditation change these two beloved people in my life um, and go from like stressed, you know, single parent, just trying so hard to bring things together into a really loving, calm, centered person. And my mother, she found her pathway in the Buddhist tradition. And then my father um, went out and studied with Dr. John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center and became really the first MBSR mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher in the state of New Mexico. Mm. 
And now I'm, um, I, I'm one of the only, if not the only second generation MBSR mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher in the world. So watching my parents change and my, my father went from type A had to be in charge of everything and everybody bossing us all around <laughs> all the time to this really, again, calm, centered, very lovable, very open-hearted person. Um, so to watch their journey. And of course, when I was, we were growing up, me and my sister, they tried to share it with us. And we were like, we don't need meditation <laughs> until obviously the stress of our own lives. I'll speak for myself. Sure. My own life started to catch up. And then I was like, okay, dad, please, I, I'll just try anything at this point. Teach me mm. how to meditate. Um, so there's my answer, my parents and their lifelong kind of journey and, and practice and with meditation and watching how deeply it, it transformed not only them personally, but it, within the scope of our family. That's wild that, that both your parents taking, you know, splitting and taking two separate tracks in life, both found the same things, the same benefit from meditation. So as growing up, did you, and I know you mentioned this, but did you know that meditation was the direct result of those things? Or you just saw some changes in your dad and you're like, wow, he's becoming more soft-hearted and, and open and things like that. Or was it always from day one, like, I'm meditating, this is what I'm doing, and it's changing my life in these ways? Like, were you aware from the beginning that meditation was the, the core, you know, reason behind this? What a great question. And I'm so happy you asked that because um, it, it leads me into a teaching I commonly give parents who wish to um, teach mindfulness and meditative practices mm -hmm. to their children. Yeah. And what I tell them is, do it for yourself. And just as we know, you know, there's that saying, don't be afraid that kids aren't listening to you. Be afraid that they're watching you. Yeah. They learn so much and they soak up so much more than they even know that they're soaking up just by watching you. And I think one of the things that was so helpful in my family unit was watching them meditate <clears throat> and then starting to realize that mom and dad were a lot cooler <laughs> to be around after they meditated okay. and as compared to before. So it kind of planted the seeds almost like subconsciously that meditation could um, allow for some of those outcomes within our, you know, structure. And so like sometimes my kids, if I'm like freaking out about stuff, they'll be like, go meditate. And then we'll talk about going to GameStop after you meditate, you know, like <laughs> put her in a good space. So, and I kind of love that because there, I see that kind of building that association between kind of a, a more open-hearted present state and meditation, whether they would be able to say that or not. I don't think growing up, I could say that that's what it was, but when I needed it, it didn't feel like it was coming from outer space, right? Because it yeah. wasn't like this weird thing that we were trying. It was like, oh, okay. Why not try something that both of your parents have been doing that has helped them tremendously? Why not you try it as well? And it it was a lot easier to integrate into my own life because of that. Interesting. That that reminds me of so my twelve year old son. You know, I work out every morning, and it's always been a staple of my life. And but I haven't necessarily brought him into that practice because because it is kind of my own time. It's it's my source of meditation in a way. Just getting away, not worrying about the world. I work out for an hour. But my son knows I do that. He knows I get up earlier before everyone else does. And so I can go to the gym and do those things. And so the past year or so, he's been working out some dumbbells in his room and, and slowly just seeing him take on that own practice without, you know, me even saying anything. Right. And then funny story the other day, um, my wife picks him up from school and he goes, mom, when I was in the bathroom at school and I grabbed a paper towel and I looked in the mirror, my arm looked so big. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is terrific. And that is... Yeah. 
a beautiful illustration. And, you know, I mm -hmm. encourage people listening to, to think about some things in their own lives that maybe they modeled or picked up from their parents, whether it be good or bad. And, right. you know, the, the hallmark or the heart of mindfulness, um, you know, like the definition that I use of mindfulness is um, intentional awareness, choosing to become aware of how we're showing up in our lives, in mm -hmm. certain moments, in certain habits. And so when you kind of reflect on like, what are some things that I'm unintentionally or intentionally sharing with my kids or my spouse or my coworkers, and you just start to kind of reflect on that, then kind of starts to arise a choice. Like, do I really want to be sharing that with my kids? That way of, yeah. for example, like yelling at other drivers on the road, exactly. right? That might be an unintentional practice that you're sharing with your kids. Yeah. And then you bring some awareness to it. And it's not like, oh, I'm a bad parent for doing that. It's about like, you bring some awareness to it and be like, how would I, how would I more wish to share how to be out on the roads with my with my kids? What feels more in alignment with who I want to be as a parent or as a person out in the world? Right. Well, I love that you brought up, you know, what mindfulness is to you and kind of your definition of it. And because that was one of the things I wanted to touch on is, you know, you talk about meditation in the beginning, and that was your parents' practice. And then you took on meditation as your own practice, but kind of talk us through the difference between meditation and mindfulness and, and what that, you know, what that is and, and practice of both of those. Shane, you're asking all of my favorite questions. This is awesome. I, I know you a little bit by now. <laughs> <laughs> no, and actually it is funny. You, Presbyterian is our longest standing client. And when, when my father first brought mindfulness trainings to New Mexico, nobody wanted them except for Presbyterian mm, said, yeah, okay, yeah. you can teach at press. And this was now probably 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, but they said, but we don't want to smell any incense coming from the room because they associated it with something kind of, yeah. you know, out there. So, um, Mindfulness, if you if you Google mindfulness, you get a big old paragraph. Um, I'm not saying that paragraph is wrong, but the you can simplify it into just those two words, intentional awareness. So everybody, almost everybody within the wide, wide range of normal spectrum of brain function, right? Mm -hmm. Normal is a huge spectrum as we're as we're learning more and more about every day. There's this great new term that I am using more and more called neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. It's just there's this huge spectrum of how people learn, how people function, how we communicate. Within that wide, beautiful spectrum of neurodiversity, um, most people have the capacity to choose to become aware of something. Like for example, for anybody listening, if I were to ask you to feel your feet right now, not with your hands, right? But with your mind, most of us, if not all of us listening, can probably kind of send their awareness down into their feet and then their feet appear to your mind. Like before I asked you to feel your feet, you're probably not feeling your feet unless they're in pain or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And then I asked you to become intentionally aware or mindful of your feet <clears throat> and there they are. So most of us have this capacity. What happens when we get stressed and people listening can kind of reflect and see if this is true for themselves, but typically a hallmark of stress is that that capacity to stay in awareness and be really noticing what is happening, how we're digesting the moment, how we're reacting to the moment, that gets greatly diminished when we experience stress. So yeah. I always say this, that the brain's number one job is always the same. It's to help us to survive. 
So when we feel threatened, be it physically or emotionally, you will trigger the same fight or flight if someone yells at you typically, you know, than if someone kind of threatens you physically. The the brain sees survival. It doesn't matter whether it's emotional survival, physical survival, it kind of reacts in in a similar way. It will shut down a lot of other functionalities in your brain to galvanize all your resources to help you to survive the moment. And one of the aspects that tends to get kind of shut down when we get under stress is that ability to be aware, right? right. This is why, um, you know, we, we don't notice that how, you know, how loud we're yelling at our kids when we get really mm-hmm. stressed or we might um, use some poor languaging, right? When we're like, yeah, you're a big poopy pants. Like you all sit and call your boss, boss a poopy pants or whatever. Like that ability to retrieve skillful language and express yourself gets shut down. So when we practice mindfulness meditation, there's lots of different forms of meditation, right? I mentioned my mom mm-hmm. does Buddhist meditation. There's transcendental meditation. What mainly differentiates the different types of meditation is the object or the focal point for your practice, like what you're focusing on. Okay. In mindfulness meditation, we focus on the cultivation of present moment awareness. So mindfulness is that capacity to choose to become aware, or you can also intentional awareness is the same thing as intentional presence. Mm -hmm. I I could say, you know, I want you to be present with your feet. It's the same phenomenon in the mind. And then how you practice that capability to choose to be aware and, and strengthen that capability is in a practice of mindfulness meditation. So sometimes I use this sports metaphor um, that um, in practice, the basketball player will shoot layup after layup after layup Mm -hmm. so that when he or she gets in the game, you might actually make the shot. Yeah. So in mindfulness meditation, the mind goes off into thoughts of past and future, which it always will. We're not even trying to shut that down when we meditate. It's just a natural functionality of, of your mind. We create thoughts. But then we practice moving our mind or letting go of those thoughts of past and, f- and future by coming back to a present moment experience. You can use the breath. You can use eating a strawberry. You can use the sensations in the body, a present moment experience. And you do it over and over again, just like go back to sports metaphor. If you wanted to create muscles in the body, you would do repetitions, weightlifting, right? You don't pick up a muscle once. And so you do it over and over again. And what you're doing is you're released, you're learning how to release thoughts and move your mind into presence so that when you get in the game of life and the opponents are crashing down on you, you just might be able to have the strength of mind to come into awareness right while the stuff is hitting the fan, right? While the stress is hitting. And this can be absolutely transformative in a lot of different ways to a person's experience of stress and how they're able to both manage it and reduce it. Hmm. So, you know, you hear these things a lot and you kind of mentioned this. So when, you know, the, the mind hasn't changed much in the past, you know, 5,000 years or whatever it may be. And so we used to be, you know, stress of a tiger or a bear coming around the corner. Maybe that happened once a day. But now, like you said, somebody yelling at you in the car, you get a nasty email from your boss, you're, we're getting more of these stressors. 
and and I've heard that you know the stress is the same no matter what it is like whether it's a tiger your your mind can't differentiate be, between it being an actual threat like a tiger or a nasty email that your body still does the same and it shuts down and like you said your mental processes stop working and things like that is is that true in terms of we're feeling that same stress thousands of times a day now as opposed to just once or twice so I'm going to step in and with what you said, just to make a, a kind of an important point. So you, you use the word mind, and I think the more accurate term that you're referring to should be brain. Okay. So brain and mind aren't the same thing. Mm. You can have a brain sitting on a table, like in a jar, right? But right. there's not a mind in that brain that's in the jar. Got you. Right? So how I define mind, just to keep it simple... Um, because we can get into a lot of like different religious and spiritual beliefs real mm -hmm. fast, right? <laughs> but um, you can understand the mind as the animating force behind the physical, right? So if you have a person who has just passed away, their body might still be completely intact. They might be lying there. They sometimes look like they're sleeping. But we can all kind of agree that there's something really different about them and someone who's still alive. And that animating force behind the physical is no longer connected to that physical body. And whatever you believe happens to it is your own personal religious and spiritual beliefs. Yeah. Um, so I think if we could just for in my world, the, the clarification can be really helpful. The brain hasn't changed that much in mm. thousands of years, but our minds change all the time. Mm. Right. And that's yeah. part of what we do in meditation is we, train our minds, which then definitely impact the wiring of the brain. It's something called neuroplasticity. Um, but um, you're correct. When the, when the brain is put on into places of stress, it feels threatened, right? It, that's the easiest way. There's something in the environment or something within our perception that feels like to the brain is going to Im negatively impact our survival it will kick into action mode and what you said and i think this is where the key point comes in the brain doesn't always know the difference but the mind mm. we can teach the mind to know the difference gotcha so sometimes i like to you know sometimes we want the brain to be in charge right if someone cuts yeah. you off on the highway I don't want to be in charge. I want my brain to take over. And I, you know, I want it because I want to do everything I can in the blink of an eye to survive. Or yeah. the other day I was carrying this really big box and I was going down some stairs and I felt my brain like compulse me to look. I was being an idiot and it was going to walk down without looking at the stairs. <laughs> right. The box is blocking my view. Right. But the, the brain kept going, no, no, we have to. And so there are a lot of times, you know, you touch a hot burner on the stove. You want the brain to be in charge of that moment right. and take your hand off it. But then what, what you're referring to, all the emails or problems with coworkers or dealing with the uncertainty that the pandemic has brought into a lot of people's lives and so much change and transition happening. Absolutely. The brain is feeling threatened. It's worried about its survival. So it's kicking into this gear. And I think that's what we're seeing in a lot of people. In this instance, we actually probably want more of our minds to be in charge than our brains. Because mm -hmm. when you're at home, let's say you're quarantining, you're working from home, in those moments, you're not actually in danger. 
But the brain, because the pandemic's out there, the brain wants to like keep you uncomfortable. That's part of what your brain wants to do, keep you uncomfortable. Because if you're out sunning yourself on a rock and you get too comfortable, a saber-toothed tiger might come and snatch you up. So the brain kind of works to find ways to kind of keep your guard up. And then we use our mind in meditation. We train our mind to be able to more skillfully connect to the present moment so we can see, hey, I know the pandemic is happening right now. But in this moment, in my bedroom, I'm actually quite safe. Mm, yeah. And though the brain can't always see that, the mind, when you train your mind to kind of come into that present moment awareness, you can start to touch into the fact that you are safe in that moment. And then you can use your mind to calm your brain and your central nervous system down. I think that's really the key piece of the functionality behind mindfulness-based stress reduction. It's not about taking this eight-week course called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, and you'll learn how to make all your stress go away. Mm-hmm. It's about starting to teach and train the mind through repetition of certain practices so that when the stress, <clears throat> when our stress response is triggered, the mind can also be at play and say, do we actually need to have our full throttle stress response on yeah. in this moment? Like one time I saw myself reading an email and I, I, it was a problematic email and I, I felt my stress response kick on. And part of what your stress response does is it, it, you know, you get all tight and tense to make an armor for your internal organs. So if you get hit, they'll be protected. Mm-hmm. It starts to make your blood thick and sticky. So if you get cut, it's going to coagulate. I mean, do I really need all of that going on? <laughs> no. My chihuahua was with me, right? And then right. the room was like, and so like, in that instance, if I if you have trained yourself to bring awareness into those moments, even when stress is kind of happening, my awareness came in and I said, was like, wait a second, I don't need to respond to this. I don't need to have all this happening in my body. Yeah. And then I use my mind and my practice to kind of lead my brain and my central nervous system out of that state of what I call an inappropriate activation of the stress response, which mm-hmm. a lot of our, as you as you were talking about it, a lot of those things are actually inappropriate activations of the stress response. We don't need our stress response on to actually survive that moment sitting alone, reading an email with my chihuahua. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for making that clarification because I think, you know, that helps me a lot. And I think it'll definitely help some of our listeners. And, and as I'm sitting here, working through it and, and listening to you, it sounds like some of you might say, hey, now that sounds pretty good, right? I can train my mind to respond appropriately and differently to some of these stressors in my life. Okay, that sounds great. So what does starting a practice look like? And, and what benefits will I see, you know, immediately, you know, or down the line, or, or kind of just walk us through starting a mindfulness practice? What that yeah. looks like? What a great question. Again, um, you're good at a great question asking. Um, So there's, excuse me, there's a lot of different kind of ways to think about beginning a practice where I would recommend, what I would recommend for just about everybody is to bring some awareness to where you are right now. Like, for example, if you're in a super high state of stress, You've just, you know, experienced tremendous loss in your family. You've lost your job. You're getting a divorce. Beginning a practice in that place might look a little bit different than somebody who's just kind of having a hard time sleeping at night or just want, you know, heard it's good for them and wants to play better tennis. So 
you know, depending on where you are um, within your life and within your, your stress, um, different people will access and begin their practices in different ways. With um, so many apps out there in the world, um, apps can be great. The one piece of the puzzle that I still think um, is vital, even in these online times, and I, I have tons of stuff online. I'm not fighting it or trying to go back to too old school. I think it's really helpful. But I do think, especially if you're experiencing you know, medium to high levels of stress, having some sort of a teacher in your life can be really helpful, okay. right? So just when we, when we go to an app, what happens to a lot of people when their stress is really high and you just click on an app, and you sit down and the, this nice meditative voice is telling you, feel your breath. And you try to feel your breath. And for a lot of people, that can actually increase your anxiety. Mm, yeah. And because, you know, they don't necessarily have the teaching that goes along with it. Or, or for some people, starting with the breath isn't the right place to start with. Just like if you've got chronic pain in the body, a typical approach in MBSR is to start with the body. But if you have chronic pain, you don't want to start with the body. You want to work your way up to kind of uh, being a little bit more present in your body. Um, so if what I try to recommend to people is if, if you have had that experience where you've turned on a meditation and it almost made your anxiety get worse, it's not necessarily that meditation can't help you or that it's not for you. It just might be that you need a little bit of kind of curated teaching that right. is a little bit more design. And, and that typically comes from a live teacher. Um, so I still, I teach MBSR. We do it in an online format um, at this point, just because of, of what we're in right now. There's teachers all across the United States, all across the world who are, are still teaching live meditation classes. We might not be able to congregate in groups at this time, yeah. but the app might not be the best place to begin, especially if you've had that kind of knee-jerk response like, that was horrible. Yeah. And then um, the other thing I recommend is some a lot of times people set themselves up for failure, meaning they say, okay, I'm going to meditate. 20 or 30 minutes every single day mm -hmm. yeah. and they do it for the first couple of days and then just managing that time commitment becomes challenging and then it can almost feel like just another mm -hmm. task on the to-do list it, it can almost add to the burden so a beautiful practice that um, i can share with people um, and again depending on where you are with stress and i'm not saying that um, one size necessarily fits all, and you're just going to feel like a blissed out Zen god after you do these practices. You know, it's, <laughs> Ideally, I do. That would be awesome, but <laughs> it is a practice, and so you build skills. So one of the things I also say is that mindfulness meditation is how we build the skill of mindfulness. Mm. Right? It's a it's a practicable, learnable skill. How do you develop any type of skill with practice? You wouldn't go out there and expect to ballroom dance the first time you stepped out on the floor. Yeah. You would be horrible at it. <laughs> but then if you spent some time consistency and, and got some training on it, you'd be able to do it to some degree at some point. Yeah. Same thing goes with meditation. So a beautiful practice that feels really mm, easy to integrate for most people is something that I call five mindful breaths five times a day. So you kind of commit, and just like anything else, there is that commitment piece. You're like, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to give it some consistency. What I like to contextualize this by saying, you know, you've been practicing stress a lot, and you've gotten really good yeah, at it. Yeah, seriously. Been, right? You spend hours of your day practicing stress. So you're yeah. like an Olympic athlete at that. Yeah. 
now you got to start to practice, you know, spend some time consistently practicing what I consider like the antidote to mm -hmm. stress or like the, the way out of it. But just as you've been consistent with your practice of stress, you got to also be consistent with your pathway out of it, right? Mm -hmm. So five mindful breaths is about is taking about five cycles of breath, and we can kind of do this together. Um, you can have your eyes open or closed. If your mind is especially wild or if you have any form of PTSD, you want to keep your eyes open, especially when you start meditating. And we can do these practices with our eyes open. So just as I, a little bit ago, had you bring your awareness to your feet, you can just kind of bring your awareness to any kind of sensations of breathing that you notice. It might be coolness in the nose, on the in-breath, warmness on the exhale. It might be a rising and a falling in the chest or the belly. There's no wrong way to feel your breath, and there's also no right way to feel your breath. So wherever you feel your breath most easily and vividly, you just kind of practice kind of just feeling those sensations of breath for just about five cycles. We're just practicing, practicing being present for the feeling of the inhale. And just practicing being present for those sensations of the exhale. Maybe just one more breath. So bringing your awareness to sensations of inhale. Sensations of exhale. And then you can kind of, especially when we begin, we can call it good at that. If you want to stay, which Shane, just so you know, you can't see him, but he obviously wanted to stay in <laughs> meditation. I don't know. Yeah. Just get, open your eyes. But if, you know, I, I want to, I like to encourage people to keep it simple to start with. You can do five cycles of breath five times a day, every day. Once you start getting into 10, 20, until you've really experienced the benefits, it's hard to stay committed it's like with anything, it's like you have to kind of feel some of the benefits right. to make the space and the time for it in your life. So the other thing I like to recommend is something called habit stacking, which I learned from this book, Atomic Habits by James Clear. Um, it can be really skillful when you want to start a new habit to stack the new habit you want to begin on an old habit you already have ingrained. So here's how simple we can make it. Yeah. Every one of us has the habit of getting out of bed in the morning. We've got that one nailed, right? Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes, right? At some point, it might be at noon. It's on, but, well, no, with kids, that doesn't happen. Right? Right. Especially babies, Shane has. So you get out of bed, um, and I, I just encourage people, <clears throat> really before you do anything else, you just sit up right in bed, because otherwise you might go back to sleep. Sit up. I put my feet on the ground, and I'll do five cycles of breath every single time when I wake up right as soon as, and so there's no negotiation, there's no <clears throat> getting off course. And sometimes the hardest thing um, with starting these new practices isn't actually doing them, it's remembering to do them. Right. So if you want to give it a try, put a post-it note like on something you're going to see right away. So if you head to the bathroom first thing, put a post-it note on your bathroom door. Mm -hmm. And you know while you're using the loo, you can even do your five mindful breaths. That's yeah. habit stacking restroom, go to the restroom, do your five mindful breaths. Yeah, right? right. And then maybe every time you get into the car, 
to go somewhere. And, and this is, can have a huge impact in and of itself. Some, I, I know for me, before I really started practicing, I could be a mile down the road before I'm really aware that I'm even driving. Mm -hmm. Like how many times have you maybe driven off in your slippers or, you know, you <laughs> right. Seen, right? So if you put a little post-it note on your dashboard, just five months, you know, it, the post-it note doesn't even always have to say anything. If you're going to get teased in your family, sure. a weird post-it note sitting on your dashboard could be trigger enough, right? right? So you see that note and before you start your engines, you feel the breath. Mm -hmm. I also like to do it every time I arrive somewhere, be it the grocery store, or teaching a class or picking up my kids. It just gives me that little, again, to go to a sports metaphor in tennis, any decent tennis player does the same thing. When the opponent hits the ball, the tennis player will take a split step mm. in order to regain his or her center of gravity so that they can more nimbly move in whatever direction is necessary. These five mindful breaths throughout the day is like a little mental split step of just, rega just regaining your center of gravity mentally. And sometimes the physical will, will come along with it. And so that from there, you can more nimbly move in whatever direction is necessary. And then closing out each day, same way. You sit on the edge of your bed, five mindful breaths, and then you can kind of build a practice from there. And for most people, when they actually give these you know, five mindful breaths, five times a day, uh, a concerted effort, they'll, they'll start to feel impact. And then we're like, that wasn't that much commitment to that, to actually feel like I'm just resetting my central nervous system at different times throughout the day, taking that split step, coming into the present. And you might notice a little bit more nimble ability to kind of move in forward in whatever direction is necessary with some time consistency and practice with it. Amazing. I, uh, I, I plan to ask you about, you know, give us an example of a client or somebody you worked with, but I'm going to step in and, and be that person. And it's funny because you literally just touched on basically my whole process. And, and, you know, I've had the great benefit of jumping into a lot of your classes throughout the years because we offer them to our clients and I'm able to sit in. Right. So it's been absolutely amazing. And so first off, I'm very glad that you mentioned the five mindful breaths five times a day, because it's really something that I have totally implemented in my life ever since I first heard it from you. Um, you know, whether it's like you said, just five breaths before you enter the grocery store. I know one that really sticks out to me is before a big meeting or an interview, I sneak off to the bathroom and I go take my five mindful breaths. And it's like you said, that that split step, that level set, it's where calming energy, don't need to be stressed about what happened. I'm prepared. I'm ready for this but calming internally so that I can go into the interview or the meeting and feel confident. And so I have totally used that practice in my life for probably five years now since I first heard it from you. So that's the first exposure. That's I awesome. love how you mentioned using apps. I remember a few years ago, I've downloaded Calm knowing I need to meditate and things like that to get those benefits and you know, clicked on a five minute introductory meditation or 10 minute. So I sat in my room and I try to go through it and, and, and they talk, you know, the, like you said, the calming talk and the, the person leading it saying, notice your breath, notice maybe a car driving by outside. And next thing I know, their their voice would go away and I would be thinking about where my next meal was coming from or, you know, what assignment I had to do. And then they jump back in and say, did you notice maybe your your toes wiggling a bit? I'm like, I was thinking about food, right? Then the meditation ends. And like you said, you feel this anxiety and this stress of I was absolutely terrible at that. That didn't work for me, you know. So whatever. So yeah, so so gradually doing those five mindful breaths five times a day was my exposure to it. And I've seen the great benefit from that. 
And you, you said you, you, and we've known each other for quite some time at this point, Mm -hmm. you've been able to take some of my live classes. I know I've seen you lurking in the zoom meetings. I've seen you in the back of the meetings when we were in the programs. Mm -hmm. So it's coupled with some teaching yeah, and it's really helpful. And you know, there, like, there are now like little cartoons. That's not my jam of having a cartoon explain a meditation to me. Although sure. it, yeah. they're adorable and they work for the, you know, just having a human, for God's sakes, you know, like yeah. sharing with you. I mean, that's the way we learn architecture and the science mm-hmm. of medicine and a lot of really important things. Is still, um, you know connecting to humans sharing other informations in a live setting with other humans. And I personally, when we first all shifted to Zoom, I was like, oh my gosh, how is this going to work? And there was a learning curve. How do I effectively and skillfully teach meditation on like a Zoom platform or an online learning environment? Yeah, And it was a learning curve, but I I also want to share this. I want to tell everybody this as much as I can. There are few greater examples of true resiliency than the human brain. Hmm. We have resiliency built in into the very structure and and dimensions and physiology of our entire mind-body system, our central nervous system, our brains, and our minds. Learning how to access that resiliency sometimes takes teaching. It's not necessarily something that all of us know how to access our inner resiliency. But even in the online platforms, I have now begun to, I I can feel people, like I can feel you out there. Hmm. I I can, I see uh, your big beard. No, I'm just kidding. I see see your face and it's not the same as talking to a wall. It's not because I know that there's a live person out there. And I think, a lot of us, we got to give ourselves credit. And I know there's Zoom fatigue, and I think that's very real, and it's harder for the brain. But I, I do think the brain is learning how to um, understand each other a little bit more over Zoom feel. And you can actually do mindfulness practices to help yourself feel other people's presence um, mm-hmm. in an online platform. And, and that's you know one of the areas I think is going to grow over the years, because I'm not sure the whole online learning environment is going to go away. Yeah, right. necessarily after the pandemic. But I think you made a good, uh, a smart point. It's like you first tried, it was hard. You discounted it, but then you found yourself in some classes, got some teachings, kept it simple with those five months. And just what I heard from you is that you kept doing it. What do you say? Five yeah. years now. Yeah. And when you go into an interview, for example, like everybody can feel somebody's presence. It changes things as mm-hmm. compared to, you can tell when someone's a million miles oh, away right that spreads. And then when someone is really there with you, it -hmm. changes things. And we can offer that both to ourselves and the world that we engage with. Yeah, it's beautiful. So to kind of wrap up, we love offering, you know, our listeners resources, and you kind of touched on a lot of these things and and how they can get plugged in, whether it's in, you know, in-person class, of course, in this great world, you can access instructors from all over the world, live even, you know, from the comfort of your couch. Give us some resources, whether it's your own, whether it's, you know, an instructor elsewhere, whether it's your online platform, just just let us know how somebody can get started after hearing all these great benefits and and hearing these stories and hearing my story. How can somebody get plugged in? Yeah. So I have now been teaching mindfulness for over 20 years. And when the pandemic hit, I thought to myself, like, this is my time to serve. Stress is going through the roof. How do I plug in right here, right now? Like, this is my time. I need to be of service. 
So I've spent the last year and a half, two years, whatever it's been, um, kind of refining and figuring out how to best serve the the community at large. So uh, on my side of things, I've developed a platform called Life on Mindfulness. And it's um, like curated content, uh, 10 bucks a month for community members. Um, you get access to two live workshops every single month, five new guided meditations every month. Um, and then on that curated content page that you get as part of the platform, I basically give you a structure of what to do for the week. Yeah. Here's if you want a plan for the week of how to integrate simple mindfulness practices, here's the plan. And you can plug in, you could do one day of it, you could do all seven days of it, you could do here and there. There's little video teachings and then it changes every week. Um, and I also, as you know, I can also offer that to employer groups where you have curated content just for specific employer groups. So an employee mm -hmm. could you know, purchase a, the license for a year, whatever it is for Life on Mindfulness, give access to all their employees, and then they have their own kind of access to their own private life on mindfulness. And I'm, I'm, I'm super proud of it. And I, I think it's a, one of the best offerings and I noodle around in everybody's offerings. Cause I want to make sure that what I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in there. I think it's one of the best mindfulness offerings. You, you have the live teaching, you have a live teacher, you've got live curated content, you've got things on demand. So to me, it brings together the best of both worlds. You can plug in, you can sure. plug out, plug back in again. Um, so that would be from my side of things, Life on Mindfulness uh, platform, which I, I, I'm super honored and proud to be offering right now. Beautiful. So where can we find you? If somebody wants to Google you, Google Life on Mindfulness, your other resources, how can they find yeah, you? There's this great thing yep, called the Google. Yep. Um, and if you Google, um, I'm my company is The Mindful Center. So um, I'm themindfulcenter.com. If you forget that, if you do Michelle Albuquerque mindfulness, I'll come up 80,000 mm -hmm. times. If you do mindfulness Albuquerque, that's where I'm situated. But now with the online, I, I offer programming all across the United States and a little bit beyond. I'm into Canada and a little bit here and there. So uh, the Mindful Center is me. Great. All right. Well, great, Michelle. So we appreciate your time. I mean, I love this conversation. I love talking to you any chance I can get, but I think our listeners are going to get so much knowledge in just the short time that we've had together. So thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. And and my last little note to everybody, we got this. We can we're gonna get through this. Mm -hmm. We can get through this. You know, that 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 sense of resiliency, we're gonna figure it out. We're gonna keep learning and growing. And um that that would be my my message of hope to everybody during these super challenging times. We're we're gonna get through this and we're gonna get through it together. Hearing Michelle's story about how meditation improved the lives for both her parents and how that ultimately inspired her own path toward becoming a practitioner and teacher of meditation shows us that being open to tools that we may have overlooked in the past can transform us and that consistent practice of mindfulness meditation is truly a path to greater well-being. Thank you to Michelle for inspiring us with your purpose and passion. If you would like to learn more about the Solutions Group, please visit us at www.solutionsbiz.com.